Welcome to Ex Libris On Air and the stories behind the stories of today's literature and their authors. A presentation of Ex Libris Publishing, host Steve Jorgensen connects with a writer to share the vision and inspiration behind their works. Insightful, informative, and always entertaining, please welcome host Steve Jorgensen and this week's edition of Ex Libris On Air. This is Ex Libris On Air. My name is Brian Houston, and today we are talking about a book called Greyhound Therapy by Ex Libris Publishing. The author of the book is Joe Conway. Joe is on the phone with us right now from New Mexico. Joe, how are you? I'm doing fine, sir. Very good to talk to you. Thank you very much for being with us today. First of all, before we talk about Greyhound Therapy, uh, let's talk a little bit about your background. You've had uh, quite the experiences in, in life. Yes, I have, and um, my wife has always told me that I've scratched every itch I ever had, <laughs> so I have been blessed, and uh, I was born in in Maryland on a farm, so I'm, I'm no, no neophyte to work, and uh, I uh, went to college, and once I graduated from college, I went into the service and spent multiple tours in the Vietnam uh, conflict, and then got out and went into law enforcement, and then went into my own private business. My wife and I we went in business together, and now I'm assisting businesses that want to do business with the government. Very good. And in your free time, uh, you've become an author. In my free time, yes, <laughs> I've, been, I've decided to write. Yes. Uh huh. Outstanding. Well, let's it, talk it, about the book uh, Greyhound Therapy. Uh, first of all, uh, where'd you come up with the name? Greyhound therapy is um, uh, a carryover from um, something that used to happen in law enforcement. People um, used to be um, thrown into a situation where they had to deal with law enforcement or, or vice versa. The law enforcement had to deal with them. And... Uh, there was nobody to turn them over to, uh, and they generally ended up in jail, even though they might not have needed to be there. Mm -hmm. And law enforcement used to take and buy them a bus ticket and send them on to the next county and let those folks deal with them. <laughs> and that's where the name Greyhound Therapy came up. All right, very good. So this okay. obviously has to do with buses and transients. And then I'm, yes. I'm uh, guessing that uh, with your your law enforcement background, that it also has to do with fighting crime. It does. And uh, the uh, lead character in this book is a hard-nosed law enforcement officer, but he also has a soft spot. And he has the, 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 uh, the charge of taking care of these transients. He's overwhelmed because uh, the town went from 45,000 people to 140,000 people wow. in a matter of six months. And people came in by the busloads, and uh, some of these people were less than desirable. And this story sort of highlights the things that happened as a result of these folks coming to town. This sounds very much like uh, what happened when Hurricane Katrina came in and it uh, forced the relocation of all these people from New Orleans to uh, all points north and west, uh, all the way probably to as far as New Mexico. So uh, there, there's a lot of reality to that. Yes, you can relate to that. It's very similar. And you can imagine what happens to these, the resources in these towns when that occurs. You know? It stretches you and, pretty thin, I would think. Right, and this story happens, it's set in a time when there was an oil boom in Wyoming. So you can imagine all of these workers are coming in from Oklahoma and, and Louisiana and Mississippi and trucks and buses and and trailers and everything was lined up against up the highways. People didn't have, you couldn't buy a doghouse, you know, in order to lay in. Um, and these people coming in on buses at the same time. So it it uh, really put a strain on the resources of the town where this story is set. 
Now, is there a uh, particular incident in the book that you can point to, or is this just a, basically an overview of the uh, day-to-day dealings that the, uh, the uh, Sheriff's Department had to deal with with this explosion of population and uh, maybe uh, the uh, undesirable uh, population that came into town? Yeah, we uh, I zeroed in on on one instance where there was a criminal element that came in, and it turned into a um, uh, a pretty good um, portion of this book. He uh, got involved with a person who had come to town on a bus, but he also was involved in. A disruption on the bus, and the bus driver kicked him off. And he put him and his friend in jail, and as a result of him being upset with his friend, he ended up killing his friend right in jail. Right. And then he escaped, and that's where things get interesting. <laughs> so <laughs> then the rest of the book, I guess, is dealing with trying to capture this man, the chase involved, and, and all the things that the, the sheriff has to do. Uh, in a situation where uh, he's undermanned, doesn't have the resources or the staff to deal with it, right? Exactly, and it also shows how sharp some of these um, county sheriffs can be. Can you give me an example of that? (laughs) Yes, um, he um, pretty much, in in his own mind, fought like the criminal. And as a result, he was always one step behind him, and then he finally caught up with him just by thinking like a criminal or, or, or thinking like a person on a run. That's, that, that's really what he did. And uh, as a result, he finally got him cornered. Okay, very good. I don't want you to give away the end. Don't spoil it for people. No, uh, don't spoil it. <laughs> All right. <laughs> tell, me, tell me why you wrote this book. Well, for two reasons. When I grew up, I used to ride the bus from the farm. The bus stopped right at our farm road. And from the farm into Washington, D.C. to take music lessons. And the only way I could do was to ride the Greyhound. Greyhound was the was the ultimate mode of transportation during that time. And I used to sit there on the bus and I'd watch all of these people get on. And I'd wonder, you know, where are they coming from? And where are they going? And what are they going to do when they get there? And why are they going? So I became sort of like a people watcher. Mm-hmm. And then when I got into law enforcement, I got exposed to it again and I had to deal with some of these people and I found out why some of these people were traveling on the bus you know either they were running away from something running to something or just enjoying a good trip across the country and I can remember this little lady sitting beside me I was about 14 years old and she was sitting beside me one day and she said uh, uh, she was going to California to pick up her daughter, who had run off with this shiftless old man, and he had now just walked out on her and left her, and she was going to bring him back home. And she had to tell me the entire story of how this started and how she hoped it was going to end. And then you also, I, I remember a, a minister who spent a whole trip one day, a 45-minute trip, trying to save my soul and there were all kinds of interesting characters on the bus did he succeed i think he missed his calling this time (laughs) that's great well the interesting thing about it is when you talk about these this variety of people uh this diverse variety of people on this on a particular bus and all there are so many stories Uh, i get the feeling that greyhound therapy uh, could be a series of books. Believe it or not, it's set up that if it does well, there'll be a sequel. There are a lot of stories to be told there. Yes. Well, yes, they are. And uh, people can relate to riding a bus. Most people have ridden a bus at one time or another. And uh, and I'm sure that they, thinking back, uh, they'll have some chuckles. Do you still ride the bus? Periodically. Periodically, I'll take take a short ride on a bus. I don't take any long trips on the bus anymore. But um, periodically, I'll go from one town to the other. Has the experience changed much uh, from when you were a child? No. 
not really. The only difference is that uh, people don't smoke on the bus anymore. That's the only difference. <laughs> the air is a heck of a lot pure now. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, one of the things that you deal with, I think, in the book has to do with deadly force by police. Is that correct? That's correct. Uh, the sheriff has twice he's had, had to put a man down. So what are your feelings about the use of deadly force by police? Personally, having been a, a law officer, I think there's something lacking in the training that these officers receive nowadays. We spent hours and days on, on end trying to learn how to defend ourselves and also how to take a person down without serious injury. Mm -hmm. Today, they start with the gun. Um, Shoot first um, and ask questions later. You were, yeah, they got the gun out before they even realize that, the, you know, if there's a threat. Mm -hmm. And therefore, uh, when you do that, you've already set the mode, and uh, people become defensive, they become afraid, and the situation escalates. And one of the things that we were always taught is don't become a part of the problem. You know, be patient. Take your time. Give them an opportunity to assess the situation that they're in. And nine times out of ten, you're going to come out on top. Did your law enforcement officer in the book uh, manage to handle that kind of restraint? Yes, he did. He always waited until he had no choice. Uh, yeah. The other question I ask you about is uh, when we talk about riding the bus, uh, what kind of advice would you give someone who plans to ride a bus a long distance for the first time based on your experience? Get in the center of the bus. Why is that? Yes, get in the center of the bus because that, that way you, you have an opportunity to see what's going on around you. You also have an opportunity to see what's out there, you can look out the windshield, you know, mm -hmm. and therefore um, you're not just sitting there uh, behind the seat because the seats are so high, you really can't see very much. And then you can watch people go by, and nine times out of ten, if you're in the center of the bus, you'll get a person that will sit down beside you. Most people will either head to the back, especially if they want to drink or at that time, smoke, and then uh, they'll head to the back of the bus. And then if you've got uh, a person who, say, is a young person that's traveling by themselves, they'll try to sit up front. And then if you're sitting there and you get a medium-aged person, say between 40 and 50, they'll probably sit down with you and you won't have to worry about the, the, the other characters. <laughs> <laughs> the people that make your book interesting. Yes, that's exactly right. What yes. do you want people to feel, to experience when they read your book? What would you like for them to come away from your book uh, thinking? I, I'd like for them to, to, to realize that uh, there are people out there that really need help and that a lot of communities are not prepared to deal with them. Also, that everybody that that uh, rides the bus is not a bad person. Just because they ride the bus doesn't reflect upon their their character. Uh, people ride the bus because they don't have they're not in a hurry. They ride the bus because they don't have. Uh, uh, a flush with with funds, you know. It's cheap, relatively uh, cheap to ride the bus cross country. Yeah. And then there's a, and then there's people that ride the bus just because it's a nice, comfortable ride. They leave the, the driving to somebody else. Sounds very good. Now, is there anything I've left out uh, as we uh, get ready to wrap up our interview here? Anything that you want to add about your book that I have not covered? I think the book is a very good read, and it covers a lot of areas that people really don't know about. And it will be surprising to some, and it will be a reminder to others. 
uh, especially if they've been around a while. Where can we and find? And I hope I hope people enjoy it. I'm sure they will. Now, where where can we find the book? You can find the book on Amazon or on uh, Barnes and Noble. You can order it from the publisher, or if they contact me direct, I'll send them a copy. You would you like to share that uh, contact information? You bet your you uh, Joe Conway at 4116 Winchester in Las Cruces. Email address jcon, that's J-C-O-N, at comcast.net. Mr. Conway, enjoyed visiting with you very much. Uh, the name of the book is Greyhound Therapy. Thank you very much for uh, sharing your time, and best of luck with the book. Thank you for interviewing me i i enjoyed it thank you thank you so much jr joe conway the author of greyhound therapy uh published by ex libris this is ex libris on air my name is brian houston thank you very much for listening ex libris returns after these short messages Hi everybody, this is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station. Why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear these latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. Welcome back to Ex Libris with your host, Steve Jorgensen. This is Ex Libris On Air. My name is Brian Houston. Today we want to tell you about a book entitled The Boy in a Plastic Cast, a story of a childhood experience. The author of that book is Peter Saunders, and he is with us on the telephone via Shrivenham Oxen Western, and that is in England, correct? Yes, in Oxford. How, uh, how is the weather there? <laughs> well, it's cheered up a lot. Uh, we have had uh, massive flooding in, uh, in the last few months. A lot of people in the Somerset area particularly have been flooded out of their houses. But the sun is now shining, and as I said, we are drying out. Very good. All right, first thing we want to do is talk about your book, of course, The Boy in a Plastic Cast, a story of a childhood experience. So first and foremost, this is your story, correct? Yes, it is. Tell us about your story, then. What is it the book is about? Okay. Okay. Um, really, it's about um, a four-and-a-half-year-old child, which was me, incarcerated in a plaster cast, if you can imagine this, from foot to chest. So I couldn't sit. Um, there was a, a, just a hole for necessary functions, bodily functions. And uh, I lay there for a year and a half in total. So you can imagine what it's like for a four and a half year old child to reach practically the age of six, uh, totally immersed in a plaster cast. The reason, the reason for the plaster cast was that uh, back in, I was born in 1940, and obviously I was German at the time, um, and still am. <laughs> and uh, my parents were both German, and unfortunately, when my mother was, because uh, this was obviously during the war, when my mother was evacuated to a farm to escape from the bombing in the city that we lived in, um, the cows in the farm uh, carried tuberculosis. Um, and obviously the farmer used to give us a pail of milk every day, which we drank readily because um, most foods were extremely scarce. And unfortunately, um, I drank the tuberculosis bacillus, 
and it can take many forms. Usually people associated it with being uh, in, in the, the chest, in other words, in the lungs. Uh, in this case, it settled in my left hip and, uh, you know, it, it uh, erupted into a, a, a huge swelling um, and the only way to treat it in those days was to immobilize whatever the joint was that, that had the disease and the way to immobilize it was to put it in a plaster cast. This prevented the disease from spreading throughout the rest of the body and, uh, you know, possibly killing us. Now, um, a lot of people in those days, of course, died of diseases which nowadays one could discount as being curable. And tuberculosis was uh, not curable in those days. Um, I think Merck discovered um, uh, um, streptomycin uh, way back in the 50s. So, you know, it, it was totally incurable, as was polio and typhus and venereal diseases and many other diseases which commonly now can be treated. Um, and of course they, they, you know, they sent me to a hospital in a place called Zendenhorst, um, which unfortunately was the uh, main cause for the story that I had to tell, and that is that the treatment there was not by any means ideal. And a great number of my childhood friends in the hospital during the period I was there died from diseases which, as I say, now would be curable. Um, so it's a very morbid affair. But the main thing is that the nursing staff were particularly cruel, um, unsympathetic to treating children. Um, the nuns at that time were not necessarily taking holy orders because uh, they were religious people, but what happened in Germany after the First World War was that many nuns became nuns because their Prussian fathers put them into holy orders because women outnumbered men by three or four to one in certain towns, and they didn't want their daughters getting into trouble, um, you know, and not being married. So the obvious thing in a very Catholic sort of area was mm -hmm. to put them into uh, nunneries. Now, you can imagine that these people, having been forced into this particular situation, were not necessarily the right people to look after children or the right people to um, be sympathetic. And the other problem was that some of the nurses would much rather have treated the German troops coming back from the war, uh, you know, the injured soldiers, than be put in charge of children or elderly people. So there was a trend to have a, a, a number of unsympathetic nursing staff. And I think that the treatment of the children in that ward, um, the way they were treated, the, the way they were punished constantly, um, the fact that many of them died unfortunately from the disease they contracted, um, was the main part of the story. And of course in the, in the background my father was killed on the Russian front in 1942. Uh, I was only two years old, so I didn't know about it then. But I have actually a copy of the telegram that was sent to my mother at the time, telling her that he'd been shot in the head by a Russian sniper outside Stalingrad. Stalingrad. Um, uh, and, you know, that he died for the fatherland. I mean, this is the sort of telegram they got in those days. Um, Fortunately, my mother then, at the end of the war, my mother um, fell in love with a British soldier whilst I was still in the hospital. Um, and, of course, that turned my life around considerably because suddenly, you know, we were, I, I was taken out of that horrible hospital and put into a, a military hospital where, you know, the British troops were in, in that part of Germany. And, um, you know, the whole of my fortunes turned around from that point. And so how, how, how old were you? I'm, let me interrupt you. I'm sorry. How old were you when things turned around? I was approaching six by then. Okay, so four and a half, I went into the hospital, uh, into Zendenhorst. And uh, when my mother married, uh, I was about five and a half, and they sort of got me out of this hospital when I was about six. You have to understand, of course, that 
traveling in those days. One couldn't get petrol. This is Germany just after the war. Um, you couldn't get petrol. The, the railway stations were devastated by the bombing. So I never actually saw my mother more than once in the year that I was in, in Zendenhorst Hospital, the German hospital, that is. So, you know, the ability to be able to travel and to, you know, to visit people in hospital and do routine things, which we all take for granted nowadays, um, just didn't exist. So I never saw, I saw my mother once in the whole time that I was, for the whole year that I was in Zendenhorst. But when she married the English soldier, he used to drive around in the Jeep and uh, so he could actually transport her to visit me in the military hospital that I was then transferred to. At, so, uh, you know, uh, that sort of turned my life around. At what point uh, did you determine that this is a story that you wanted to tell in book form and share with the uh, public at large? Well, it was mainly about uh, the, um, the whole story is also about a family in Germany, a working class, normal family. Um, and, you know, the travesty of the war that was theirs. I mean, they, you know, everyone thinks that all Germans were, uh, you know, Nazi-inclined. I mean, there were social democrats in Germany, like my grandfather, who protested vehemently against Hitler, Hitler's administration. Um, but unfortunately, they were parted away sometimes by the Gestapo, and as you probably know, um, the uh, some of the um, uh, camps were full of German prisoners rather than just, just Jews. I mean, Dachau in particular, um, I think two-thirds of the prisoners in 1943 were, were actually German. Um, and it wasn't until later that the, the Jews actually arrived at Dachau. And incidentally, one of the girls in the ward was, um, came out of Dachau and she, um, she had typhus and her story, Ali Liebermann, was a Jewish girl is also part of the story. Yeah. I, I just felt that having talked to my aunt and my mother um, and, you know, my uncle, um, who told me all the various things that went on in Germany, in the war, um, among ordinary people, uh, and my own experience in this long-term in hospital, uh, was a story worth telling. You were very, very young, uh, four and a half years old when this took place, and um, I have very few memories of my life when I was four and a half, maybe two or three. Obviously, this was a very traumatic time for you, but how hard was it to, uh, or, or was it hard to come up with the details, the memories that, uh, that took place at that time at a very early age? Well, most times, four and a half, five-year-olds, would probably just remember happy times, going to school, things of that ilk. When you are lying flat on your back in a plaster cast and thinking of nothing else other than that's going on around you, um, it, it leaves a very vivid impression on your memory. Um, and I think that, you know, that impression on my memory has lasted up until now, you know, I'm, so, I'm approaching 74 now, mm. um, and I, when I uh, discussed this with my children and acquaintances of mine, they said, wow, you know, uh, we remember reading a book about a, a boy in the striped pajamas, I don't know if you know that book, which is interesting, again, sim not similar, but a, a story about a boy, you know, and his experiences in um, a concentration camp or part of a concentration camp. And I, um, they just said, look, you know, this is a story which you ought to write down. And I mainly wanted to write it down to tell my children and my acquaintances uh, part of my life at that time, and you know, which, which was a, a pretty horrific time, but it all came out well. And I didn't come to England until I was 11, so, um, you know, I had to learn, well, as you can imagine, a German boy in a German hospital, being transferred to a military hospital um, in the children's ward, and not being able to speak a word of English. Mm -hmm. Now, that was a fairly difficult time for me, especially just after the war, when, of course, children were particularly cruel towards Germans anyway. Um, and so I rapidly learned to speak English without an accent, 
in order that I should merge into the military hospital situation. Um, so, you know, it's, it's things like that that people probably haven't thought about. How on earth did you cope for a year and a half in plaster? And how on earth did you manage then to, uh, you know, get yourself into an English situation? Um, and uh, it was difficult. Well, it was, it's a fascinating story, no question about it. And I know that uh, at this point you probably have to feel very gratified that you were able to get it down on paper, get it in the book form, and then be able to pass it on to uh, your immediate family uh, as well as to uh, readers at large because it's a piece of uh, World War II history that not many people are aware of, I'm sure. Yes, I think that's true. And it does tell it from... The, the point of view of just an ordinary family. I mean, my grandfather worked in a, a factory. It was a textile weaving factory. And we lived in a very poor terrace house, which was alongside the weaving factory. And my uncle's... Uh, sorry, the, the other point was that, of course, virtually all the males in the family um, were killed on the Russian front. Mm. So they, there is a piece on it about, um, you know, Barbarossa, which was the invasion of German troops into Russia and of course the, the siege of Stalingrad which was pretty awful. One of my uncles actually was incarcerated in um, a Russian gulag and you wouldn't believe this but he actually he came home on, in 1946, that's virtually a year after the war ended, and he walked from Siberia to Germany. Oh my. And when he arrived <laughs> when he arrived at home, my auntie, who's obviously his wife, didn't even recognize him. He I can imagine. Home, and he he had a shaggy beard and she thought he was a tramp. <laughs> she was gonna give him a few she was gonna give him a few pennies and send him on. Wow. And of course then she realized that was her husband. But these are the sort of things that went on. And, uh, you know, the, the, all my uncles and my father, of course, uh, died in Russia. Mm. And uh, some of their experiences were actually sent back via mail. So I also told that story as well. You know, so that was quite interesting. Fantastic. What is one thing that you want readers to learn or take away from your work? Well, I think that the main thing is that we, I believe that we take far too much for granted nowadays. You know, um, when I look back at a time when we didn't have the wonderful medicines, I mean, I studied pharmacy at Plymouth and I worked for Merck, you know, which is a big American company for 32 years. And I saw the development of, you know, drugs and medicines which now cure virtually everything. We don't see children dying of diphtheria and even whooping cough, and certainly polio, my God, that was a killer, and mm. in America as well. Uh, you know, we take so much for granted now, and the other thing I want to, I'm a, I'm a great pacifist now, I, I cannot understand why, you know, we go around killing each other. Mm. And when you're in a situation where, I mean, 26 million Russians got killed in the war, um, you know, and the hundreds of thousands of people that, that, that died as a result, of, of the war okay I mean if you're protecting the country you can understand why but I just believe that one should try to avoid killing one another as, as, as often as possible yeah that's and, a w uh, wise idea <laughs> yes Peter Saunders where can we get your book The Boy in a Plastic Cast a story of a childhood experience well I've, uh, I've got a couple of rights on, on Amazon which um, is, you know, one of the ways. And, of course, it's on Kindle. And I believe that Exilibris, um, you know, if you look on their website, you can get it there as well. I do. So, um, many sources. I, I'm not sure whether Exilibris have managed to get them into the bookshops, but certainly Amazon um, and Kindle and various other, you know, uh, online uh, factors can, can uh, make it available. And do you have a website or any social media or a way that uh, people can contact you that you'd like to share? I, I believe, sorry, I'm not well prepared for that. That's okay. Uh, I, believe that, I believe that the boy in a plaster cast, in fact, if you Google it, okay. it, it you know, it will show the websites. And um, I, I believe there is a website called the boy in a plaster cast. 
Okay. Very good. And uh, once again, uh, is there anything I've left out? No. No, that's been very comprehensive. Very good. But, you know, and I think that we've covered most of the book, but, um, you know, there are some very interesting anecdotes in it. And I believe that historically it is worth reading uh, because obviously... Uh, oh, there's one other thing which I meant to say. Some people... Um, say that um, the Germans must have been aware of the death camps. You know, we had a neighbor, uh, sorry, another lady who married an English soldier who um, my mother befriended when we came to, to England. And she lived outside Berlson. And my mother said, you know, you must have known what was going on there. And, you know, uh, incredibly, she said that they were told that this was um, a factory which manufactured um, uh, fertilizers, you know, mm-hmm. and hence the, the, the steaming and the smoke and the smells and all this peculiar thing. And uh, obviously the train loads of people were supposed to be the workers. And she said, why would we believe that, you know, there were thousands of people being incarcerated and killed there? Do you know what I mean? You just would not believe that. And, of course, the German propaganda machine was huge. I mean, they controlled everything. The the radios, the the, the, um, news uh, broadcasts, which you saw in the cinemas, and obviously the press. So you can imagine how a whole nation, or not a whole nation, but (laughs) the average person in the street could be totally and utterly misled for so many years over their, their cause. And uh, I think, again, we should be much more open-minded in what we read sometimes. Uh, not that I'm saying that we are press and, and our radios are, are being controlled by the state, but um, you know, it just shows you what can happen under the worst circumstances. Great lessons to learn from history. Peter Saunders, thank you so much for your time. Uh, we really appreciate you uh, sharing your story and telling us about your book. Thank you very much, and thank you for the interview. Again, the name of the book is The Boy in a Plastic Cast, A Story of a Childhood Experience. It's published by Ex Libris UK. And uh, I am Brian Houston. Thanks very much to Peter Saunders for being with me. This is Ex Libris On Air. Ex Libris returns after these short messages. Join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu. Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. Helen Wu was born and raised in San Francisco's Chinatown. And after a very difficult upbringing, fighting depression, abuse, and addictions, she finally finds herself genuinely happy inside and out. Helen believes in taking our positive thinking and doing something positive to achieve a positive outcome. She's here to make a positive difference in your life, to be your game changer, your aha moment mentor. She's ready to help both men and women get into a better place. Helen Wu is also the author of Self-Aid Success Stories, 25 Success Stories from Successful Entrepreneurs. Inspired by Ellen DeGeneres, Helen wants the world to know that just because we find ourselves in a difficult situation doesn't mean we have to stay there. We can aid ourselves to a better life. So join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu. Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. Welcome back to Ex Libris with your host, Steve Jorgensen. Greetings for Ex Libris On Air. This is J. Douglas Barker. The title of the book, Small Forces. And our author is Mike Conver. Welcome, Mike. Hi, Jay. How are you doing? Doing well, sir. And you're in Kentucky in the United States, if I'm understanding Mm -hmm. where you're living. And uh, from what you've described to me, it's a place that everyone who likes water, boats, and mosquitoes would love to live. (laughs) You've got plenty of all three of those. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for joining me today. You have uh, written this as your first novel. You have a background as an educator. Would you share with my audience a little bit of your background and why this book became important to you and you wanted to write it? Well, my background uh, began with me having a, earning a degree in journalism, and uh, I was invited out to interview with the Copley newspaper chain out in California. 
uh, I was a scoutmaster at the time, and there were two young boys that uh, had nothing to do that summer, and so they wanted to ride along, and we went out west together. Grand Canyon, all that kind of stuff, Cowboy Hall of Fame, you know. And by the time I got back, I thought, I don't think I want to write newspapers anymore. I think I would rather mess around with kids. So I taught for many, many years, and then I became a counselor, and then a principal, and then a superintendent. After that, somebody wanted me to teach graduate-level courses at Bradley University. That was boring. There weren't any hmm. kids in the building. So I sat down and wrote a book. Well, it must be at least something to do rather than being bored. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Tell me the background story of this. This is about a 12-year-old boy that's very bright. Is that the, the, the main character in your book? He's one of them. Uh, his older brother uh, is kind of fathering this child because the, their dad has left the picture. And the older brother has a friend who's gotten into drugs and is being pursued by a drug pusher. Mm. So the two boys, the two high school age boys, uh, get involved with his drug dealer. He abducts them. And then the younger brother and his teacher try to rescue the older boys. The younger brother is a very bright young man, but does not read well. And... While he was in the lower grades, he functioned very well with his age mates. And then when he moved to the junior high, they stuck him into a, a special ed class. And he's unhappy about that. Mm -hmm. uh, he wants to be with the kids that he was with in the grade school. And secondly, he's very worried about his big brother. Is your book targeting, say, high school and above, or will this be a read for just about anybody? It probably should be high school or above. Um, the Vietnam vet who's the drug pusher frequented a prostitute while in Vietnam and was an abused child in foster settings. Uh, so it might be a little bit sharp for anybody um, pre-high school. Would you describe your main storyline as somewhat, I was going to use the word depressing, but one that's a challenge to the characters in your book, or would it be one that really has a bright ending? Well, without wanting to give away the whole story, uh, <laughs> it, it is a challenge for the people. Uh, for the parents, the single parents of these kids, for the teacher who wants to do what's right, uh, for the boys who are wanting to support each other, uh, and for uh, the, the other one of the high school age kids who doesn't make it in the end. Hmm. Well, Mike, describe the process of writing your book. I have a lot of authors that I visit with, and some just sit down, and one day they have a light bulb go off in their mind, their creativity kicks into gear, and they just start writing. Others sit down, they write an outline, develop what characters are going to be in their novel, and then flesh them out and then begin writing. Which of those processes did you use? Well, uh, I had thought about a story for some time, and so when I decided to go ahead and write, I used legal pads and sat down on longhand, uh, developed the story chapter by chapter. After that, I just went back in and filled in the blanks, and it, it really kind of wrote itself. I was, one, easy, and two, fun. Fabulous. And how long did it take to complete? Uh, just about a year. Um, as a college prof, you've got lots of time to sit around and think or whatever, and uh, I use that mostly for writing. Any authors that you have admired that perhaps influenced your writing style? Wow. Uh, my lake house here probably has at least 4,000 volumes in it. Oh. <laughs> so I do read a lot. Oh. Uh, well, uh, I would guess maybe um, uh, Greeley, Andrew Greeley. Interesting read. I don't know if you know him. Catholic priest who just passed away recently and has written quite a bit. Yes. Um, uh, Gresham, of yes. course, writes extremely well and keeps you focused on what he's doing. He develops local characters very well also. Those are two I can think of right off the top of my head. Uh, any of the characters in this book 
you think might be the type of character that would go forward if you ever decided to write a sequel? That could happen. Uh, we've got youngsters in it uh, who could grow up, and we've got a teacher who wants to keep teaching. So I guess, yeah, it could happen. As you were writing this, did a scene come to mind that was full of action that might grab the reader's attention? Yeah, I think so. Um, the the young man who was involved with the drug dealer is being told he needs to sell to the junior high kids. Hmm. He needs to develop this clientele there. And he don't want to do that. And the bouncer who works for the drug dealer uh, kind of beats him around a bit. And finally he says, no, I'm not going to do that. <clears throat> And then he dies. Oh, boy. Now, is this novel based on any experience or story that you have been involved with in the past, maybe in your newspaper career? Any similarities? Yes, some of those, but more directly with some 40-odd years working with kids. Hmm. Um, if if you do that, you got to have a whole sack full of stories in, uh, that you can draw from. Uh, and, and no one individual is portrayed in that book. I took pieces and bits from lots and lots of people, lots and lots of activities, and tried to build them together into an interesting story. I'm sure our readers would be interested and our listeners into the title, Small Forces. Where did that title come from? Well, in the front I've got a quote from Maslow. Dr. Maslow uh, talks about small forces affecting people's psychology. But if you think about the pawn on the chessboard, that's the smallest force. But if you move it forward six times, it can become a queen who then dominates the board. Interesting analogy. Where does this story take place? Is it contemporary or is it past tense? Uh it would be in the 90s, the early 90s, about 20 years after the U.S. left Vietnam. And it's located in central Illinois, uh, a small city there, and then moving to a tiny community which uh, was bypassed by the interstate. And then its school was consolidated, and so there's not much left there. A few people who are bedroom commuter commuters to the city. So would that be considered a rural community then? Very much so, yes. And does it exist in your mind, or is it something that you took from your relationship to real life? Well, between Peoria, Illinois, where I grew up, and Galesburg, which is a bit to the west, there are about seven small communities. And uh, again, I picked and chose from them uh, to create a community that this happened in. Fabulous. If you were to drive along that highway and stop in some of those little communities, you say, oh, yeah, I've been here. <laughs> they, they've all got a little ball diamond. They've all got a church. Uh, they've all got a main street with businesses that are closed. Uh, and they've all got a big old Victorian house in them where part of this happened. Love those towns and uh, certainly grabs my attention from an imaginative standpoint, and one I can identify with for sure, a lot of people can, in introducing this book in a couple of sentences, how would you go about doing so? Well, I think that it's not a, a, a primer for parents. It's not something to teach somebody how to be an educator. It's a story, and it's a story about people, and you're not going to see car flying through the air and bursting into orange balls of flame. It's not that kind of a story. Hmm. It's people. So no vampires, then? No, not, a, not a one. No. Well, we'll have to just get along with a character-driven story. It sounds interesting already. Uh, what scenes do you think... Well, I guess we've covered that. I, I guess the book in itself, because it is character-driven and an adventure to some degree... Is it similar to anything else that you've seen in the marketplace, or is it totally different? I don't 
recall reading anything identical to it in any way. Um, I, I love to read authors who build their characters and show you who they are and why they are and what why they do what they do. Um, but there's no no story I can think of that deals with school kids and their teachers and the parents of those children who, in this case, are single. Looking back over the story, are there some underlying themes or messages that come through that maybe even you weren't expecting to happen, but they did show up? Yeah, I think there are. Um, and, and and when I went back and started trying to describe this book I had already written, uh, they popped out at me. Uh, and, and one of them is this idea that all of your interactions with young people affect them either positively or negatively. And that's important, so particularly true. for people who are going to try and guide and direct these youngsters. The second thing that kind of jumped out at me is that good teachers uh, care about their kids. Hmm. Those are beautiful themes and certainly true even with parents and their children as they're developing. Very important to uh, reinforce positive things in their lives. Absolutely. Were there challenges in getting this, your very first book, to completion? Uh, there, there's one part of it that kind of bothers me. Having been a principal and a superintendent, I pretty much badmouthed them in the book. <laughs> I haven't gotten any hate mail yet, but that may come later. And, and what I want to say, I guess, is that they are very self-centered, indifferent human beings, and that's not the normal principal or superintendent. The vast majority of them are good guys. For all the school teachers, superintendents, and uh, people of uh, authority in the education world, we'll give out your email address so they can send hate mail. <laughs> good. <laughs> <laughs> Title of this book is Small Forces, and our author is Mike Conver. Mike, where can our listeners get copies of your book? You can order them online at either Amazon or BarnesandNoble.com or BooksAmillion.com or from Ex Libris itself. And I know from our conversation, you are somewhat semi-retired. You don't know whether you're going to write another book, but if this one does well, there may be a sequel. So, listeners, keep in contact with Mike over the Internet by searching his name, Mike Conver, C-O-N-V-E-R, and uh, find out more about small forces and anything else that arises in the future. Mike, thank you for joining me today. Thank you, Jay. For Ex Libris On Air, this is Jay Douglas Barker. Join Steve Jorgensen next week at the same time as he explores the passion and the inspiration behind the works of today's authors. Right here on Ex Libris On Air.